2: crawl off and they make themselves a little hole in the ground.
3: The king and queen disappear forever below ground. They never see the light of day again.
2: The queen produces an egg every three seconds for 15 years.
1: The queens of these huge termite colonies can lay a quarter billion eggs in their lifetime. Talk about trying to keep track of the kids.
2: Her body distends it starts off as being the length of a dime and it extends to being about the size of a human index finger.
1: So this little male king sits next to this enormous female that can be several inches long, a ghastly thing, even an entomologist like myself who loves all creatures equally, is pretty startled when he sees a termite queen.
2: Skin is stretched and translucent. Her body keeps pulsating. and You can see this horrific juice bubbling underneath the surface. The babies begin to tend the queen. They feed her, they clean her. She sweats this exudate that has to be licked off continuously. They carry away the eggs, stack them in little piles, and tend them until the little termites hatch. Gradually, she gives birth to this whole mound of termites.
1: All right. The voice that you hear, one of the two voices you hear in that clip uh, is Lisa Marginelli, our our primary and most important, our our termite queen guest uh, on today's show, although we will have some other soldier guests. uh, But uh, she's talking about the mysteries of the termite queen with Mark Moffat, researcher at uh, the Smithsonian and a photographer for National Geographic. We're going to be talking about termites today. And, And let me just say, you know, there's this story, which I think has now been rendered apocryphal, that the great legendary British biologist J.B.S. Haldane was asked uh, whether his studies had taught him anything about the mind of God, and that Haldane said, he is extraordinarily fond of beetles. Uh, The idea being there's just a lot of beetles, a lot of different kinds of beetles and stuff like that. Which, you know, I mean, that's true. But when you start geeking out about termites, you think, ah, maybe, maybe it's termites, really, that he's extraordinarily fond of. Because uh, according to uh, this fascinating book that we're talking about right now, Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technologies, if you piled all of us, everybody you know, everybody you don't know, all the people on one side of a scale, and then piled all that termites, that you don't know. On another side of the, on the other side of the scale, the termites would be 10 times heavier than all the people. That's like how many termites there are. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's me sharing a fun fact that actually I got from our guest. I don't know why I wouldn't just let her say that. Lisa Marganelli is with us, uh, the author of most recently, Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. You know, first of all, uh, Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you. Yeah, I think maybe just begin just just to begin, we need to reintroduce the audience to termites. They think they know what termites are. Like the only thing that they really know is, oh my God, there's termites. Get rid of them. Um, and right. they but, eat houses, don't they? They eat houses, <laughs> don't they? Exactly. So the first thing. I mean, for, let's start with a piece of bad news for termites, which is that they only recently found out they are essentially gregarious cockroaches. As if so there's, things couldn't be worse, PR wise, for termites. they got to be cockroaches to explain that.
4: Yeah. Uh, for a long time, termites were thought to be their own kind of order of, of uh, insects that had evolved. But then it was realized that actually, uh, 150 million or so years ago, uh, they were cockroaches. And um, cockroaches are solitary bugs mostly. And these cockroaches uh, began to eat wood. And um, in order to eat wood, they needed microbes. And they couldn't hang hang on to their microbes because they would shed their intestines, molt their intestines regularly. So they started to sort of um, combine in little uh, groups sharing their Uh, they call it wood shake. That's a polite term for this little dollop of goo that they get from each other's butts and eat. (laughs) And um, they, in in starting to share the microbes, which is one social sort of colony, they also started to share their whole being with each other. And they gradually lost all the things that they needed for independent living. They lost their hard exoskeleton. They lost their large size. um, They lost... um, well, the what happens with the queen and the king is that they they actually suppress, or the queen especially suppresses the um, maturation of all the babies and all all the young termites in the colony. So actually, it's a neoteny; it's all kids in there. They keep their children kids forever, and that's what's going on in the termite colony. So they started to sort of pick and choose evolutionarily, of course, all by accident, different characteristics that allowed them to live socially and as a group rather than individually.
1: Yeah, I think you know, one, at one point in the book you say that a, a profound question uh, is, what is one termite? And mm-hmm. the answer is kind of not much, really, right? It really it, it not only yeah. takes a village to raise a termite, it takes a village just to be a termite.
4: Yeah. One termite is like nothing. They they could eat like uh, maybe a couple of periods worth of wood off of your house. I mean like periods in text. Right. But that's it. Uh, you need a whole colony to really do some damage and you need lots of colonies to really get into trouble.
1: And it's sort of blind and can't reproduce and all that kind of stuff. Like Yeah. The termite. little
4: babies are blind. Yeah. the The worker and soldier termites are blind. They can't reproduce. The soldier termites can't even feed themselves. The queens can't feed themselves. The queen is just like this giant ball of fertility and, and uh, pheromones um, that uh, influences what happens with the rest of the colony.
1: So let's, let's go a little further f- from there. I mean, so if you're an individual termite, let's face it, you suck. But uh, <laughs> you're never an individual termite, really. I mean, what, what you study when you study termites is this incredible swarm intelligence. So when you get a whole bunch of termites together, what do you get?
4: Well, you get this thing that's so much bigger than than the sum of its parts. I mean, these termites, who are uh, less than half an inch long, together, a million or two of them, can build mounds that are like 17 feet high, which is basically the equivalent of the Burj Khalifa, hmm. you know, the, the highest building we have. And they do it all by sort of instructions sort of within themselves. They, you know, they are blind, so they, they pick up balls of dirt and they drop the balls of dirt, and we don't know why they drop the balls of dirt where they do, and then how that manages to make these gigantic mounds. So the mounds you'll see in Africa, in Asia, and especially Australia, you don't see that many mounds in the US. Um, in South America, you'll also see structures in trees.
1: Right. And we'll get into this more when, uh, at the end of the show. We're going to have uh, Mike Pierce, an architect in Zimbabwe, Bob Wait, uh, who sort of uses the structure and ideas of the termitary in his uh, architecture. But I mean, we could say right now anyway, Lisa, that if you were to go and take a screwdriver or something and stick it into one of these mounds, it would be like, you know, clean up an aisle six. Right. I mean, the termites Absolutely. Would be, yeah.
4: The moment, the moment you poke something through, whether you're like an anteater or an aardwolf or, or a sunbear or a person with a screwdriver, first of all, it's pretty hard to get into these termite mounds. You, you might need a like a an axe, basically. But once you get through, you've let this air in, and that air, the different air mixture, alerts all the termites that there's a problem, and they follow kind of a gradient to that. But they also have like little alarm termites who run back through the nest, shouting basically come on come on come on there's problem there's problem and then all the worker termites grab a ball of dirt and come rushing towards the hole meanwhile the soldier termites go out to the edge of the hole also following that gas gradient for the fresher and fresher air and they just like if they happen to be the kind of soldier termites who have like um, pincers on the front of them they just blindly launch themselves off the hole towards whatever might be aggressively attacking them
1: so one of the things we learn uh, partly via Kirsten uh, Peterson, a roboticist who created a termite tracker, is, I mean, we can talk about these termites as this just network of, uh, of neurons that happen to be individual bugs, mm-hmm. um, but they're a little bit less sort of blandly identical than that would suggest, right? Uh, termites yeah. have individuality and personalities. Say a little bit yeah. more about that.
4: Yeah, well, um, Kirsten was part of a group from Harvard's Wies Institute, and they are all they study robots. And their conception coming in was that they were going to model termites with robots. So they kind of looked at termites as little living robots, and they didn't things didn't go so well for uh, some of their studies. And then Kirsten um, built a tracker which allowed them to see exactly what each termite was doing in a petri dish of dirt. And it turned out that the termites had personalities and they had memories too. So there were sort of leader termites who inspired others to dig dirt balls and pop them down. And there were follower termites and there were lazy termites. And there were total slacker termites who just would like run around a little bit and then stand by the side, maybe goofing off, who knows. And, <clears throat> and some would just sort of stand completely still for the whole time. So uh, it turns out that they have these distinct personalities. Um, and the way that we, the, the metaphor we'd been using to look at them had led us to misinterpret what they were.
1: Um, say just a little bit more about what you mean about that.
4: Well, if you go into something thinking that things are robots or thinking that mm. social insects are um, laborers on an assembly line, you're going to think that, that's, that everybody is behaving exactly the same. But once you can actually see what they're doing, you realize that they're not all behaving the same. There's a lot of different varieties of behavior, and there's also – they have memories. And, like, who knows what a termite remembers? You know, they don't mm. have that many neurons. Um but they're able to remember things and go back to the same spot. So they have, they're just, they're much more complex. Um, And also we have to kind of revise our idea of the natural world as working like a factory or working like something that we would invent to get large houses made, where we'd want all the workers to be, you know, on task. Like if you can do this with, uh, you know, 70% of the workers kind of messing around, then you have to reconsider what messing around is. Like maybe messing around is some other productive thing.
1: Right. Well, I, and as I think one of the questions you begin to explore in the book too is you know, there's this whole sort of chop wood, carry water idea that if you're sort of completely present in your task and mindful uh, about it, you can be happy uh, chopping wood and carrying water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so we think about termites and think, oh, that must, it's like slavery or something. Uh, that's not necessarily your take, though.
4: No. You know, I'm not a scientist, and I spent 10 years watching scientists watch termites. And so I got into watching the scientists, but I also got into watching uh, the scientists and the termites. And one of the things I saw is that um, sometimes the termites are very social. I mean, it feels like there must be joy. You think of it, they're all kind of genetically um, very similar. They're all brothers and sisters in there, and they're stroking each other's flanks. And trying to get that delicious drop from the butt, they're grooming each other, they're um, kissing each other and transferring water back and forth. And we still don't know, like, do they think they're kissing? Do they think they're transferring water from one wet part of the... Mound to another. I mean, they obviously don't know, but you know what would be the evolutionary purpose of this? We don't really know, but there's something in their sociality that makes them want to and be driven to hang out all the time together and do projects all the time. I mean, it would be like the ultimate preschool.
1: Lisa, I feel like this is just so bland and boring. Don't you have anything colorful to say about termites? I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So, by the way, I should say we have with us uh, Lisa Marginelli. Her book is Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. You can buy it now and then read it before the termites eat it because they will eat your book too. Um, (laughs)
4: That's the best thing about this book. I mean, aside from it being fun to read is that, you know, it's recyclable and the termites will take care of it.
1: So one of the sort of uber questions in this book is could termites slash termite science save the world? Uh, And and that's probably too big a question. But one of the things you're looking at is this notion that the part of the future of science is looking at some of these small organisms around us and either harnessing their actual power or imitating things that they do uh, in order to improve our sorry circumstances currently on this planet. Maybe just give a few examples of that.
4: Yeah, well, um, termites do, they they can eat wood and they can organize themselves in uh, an autonomous way where there's no mastermind there. There's just all these lots and lots of mini minds. So um, as far as eating wood, we would really like to be able to eat wood. Wood is really hard to break down, which is why so many of our houses are made of it. Um, And if we could imitate termites, we could uh, probably create some kind of biofuel that would allow us to continue driving our cars uh, without having to make the tough choices that we need to make about climate change. So, that's one possibility, and, and uh, one group of scientists that I was following in 2008 uh, continued to work on that in uh, biology labs uh, on the West Coast. And uh, another possibility is that if you could design robots or even sort of autonomous um software for computers that could uh, make decisions by itself to build barriers or to protect things or to um, respond to a break in your, in your computer network in the same way that the termites respond to an anteater, then those things could be very, very useful for um, running kind of a lower carbon, more thoughtful, um, less... Uh, invasive kind of system on the earth. So, I mean, our our history so far is that we tried to harness the big stuff on the earth. We built big hydroelectric electric dams, and we built um, power stations, and we built we drilled for oil and did coal mines, and we've got all these big things tying the world together. And the future is kind of much smaller. It's it's microbes and it's tiny autonomous. Um, ways of organizing and responding to things.
1: Right. And I mean, I think the other part of this, and and this will come up more in the second segment here, but, um, you know, once again, our reaction to termites tends to be, termites, get them out of here. But Mm -hmm. if you're, let's say, a wheat farmer in Namibia, maybe getting the termites out of here is isn't such a great idea, right?
4: Yeah. Actually, a a study in Australia found that putting the termites into the wheat fields and stopping uh, basic nitrogen fertilizer actually increased... The um, the wheat yields by about thirty percent, so that's a really significant increase in the yield, and that's because the termites actually fertilize land. They make it; they don't just fertilize it because they, you know, their poo contains nitrogen that's bioavailable, um, and uh, they also aerate the soil by uh, crawling through it, and um, that changes the texture of the soil and makes it more um hospitable for plants and there are places in Kenya where the termites basically dominate the landscape and have made these this kind of um like a a polka dot pattern of fertility all over the landscape and when you look at these polka dots of, of tasty leaves and trees and grasses that are right on top of the termite mounds you realize that there are more geckos there and more spiders there. And also this is where the elephants come and also the giraffes. So it has, you know, the termites are kind of like running on a treadmill just under the ground and holding up this whole um, giant pyramid of, of fertility uh, and, and also things that we really like, like elephants.
1: Um, so I want to read to you your own words and have you—this will also tie a little bit into Michael when we get to him, but let's. we can always circle back at that point. But So um, uh, this is uh, towards the end of the book, uh, and you say um, that when you're looking at a termite mound, you kind of see everything. Uh, you say, what were the mounds but the dirt's impression of the solar system, sculpted by a few million eyeless bugs? Um, and I, you go on. On a bit about that, um, or earlier in that same section, you say, via my obsession, mounds became everything that mattered to me, the meaning of life, the key to the future. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. What are you, what are you saying when you describe your own reaction to the, not the, the termite itself, but the mound? What's the mound saying?
4: Well, the simplest explanation is that the termites crawled into my head and took over. But the the second explanation is that in a mound, you know, when I'm talking about the mound being a calculation of the solar system sculpted by bugs, it's that the mound is essentially always falling because of rain and other things falling on it. And it's always rising because the termites are always carrying it up. And they are slightly prejudiced towards the sunny side of the mound. And so the mounds in in northern Namibia end up having kind of a bend at their top. And the bend is almost always about 19 degrees from north, which happens to be the zenith angle of the sun. And Scott Turner, one of the... um, Scientists who I followed uh, spent a long time just um, taking pictures of mounds day to day to see how they changed over the course of a year or two and found that that they were constantly, it's a process. We think of a mound as a thing, but it's actually a process of constantly rising and falling. And I think for me, um, you know, another thing, understanding how this process of rising and falling is constant in life. Uh, was very big for me. Um, one of the things Scott told me was that bone, your, my bones are constantly, and your bones too, are constantly being rebuilt, and they're sort of disintegrating at the same time. And kind of what it is to be alive is that the those two forces are kind of equal. And and then when, when you're not alive is when that process breaks down. And so one of the things that happened during the 10 years I was following termites was... Um, my dad passed away from cancer and during that time his bo- bones were being essentially dismantled by the effects of the cancer i guess the, there was a lot of calcium in his blood and for me it was a great comfort to realize okay well this is like a process of life and this is i can understand this in terms of the termites and so for me that was um it gave me a lot of comfort at the time and it also gave me a new way of looking at the world rather than seeing it as um, either constantly being taken away from me or always uh, the product of growth because it's the, the product of growth is always balanced by this ungrowth and, and chaos. And uh, I think so termites for me just became everything.
1: Right. Well, that leads (laughs) us into, I mean, you watched uh, termites. You watched scientists watching termites. Uh, The scientists you watched were wonderful and articulate, but science can only take you so far. And then at a certain point, you have to hand the baton before the termites eat it over to uh, poetry. So uh, the South African writer Eugene Marais uh, wrote uh, about the soul of the termite mound. We're going to play it here for you uh, as read by Lydia Brown. We're gradually having Lydia Brown read all of the great works of literature sure it's about a 27 year uh, project but uh, here's one of the first examples
2: the first thing she does is to discard her wings this she succeeds in doing by a lightning-like movement so fast that we cannot follow it with the eye one moment we see her with her wings intact the next moment she steps away and her four wings are lying on the grass she is much much quicker than a woman who discards her evening gown and hangs it over a chair it took months for her wings to grow for years perhaps she has lived in subterranean darkness in preparation for this one moment for a period of three seconds for a distance of perhaps three yards she enjoyed the exquisite thrill of flight and with that the object of a great preparation has been fulfilled and the fairy-like wings are flung aside like a worn-out garment
1: all right. Uh, well, now I'll hand the baton back to you, Elisa Marganelli. This is uh, some poetry that you directed our attention to. Uh, what does it say to you?
4: Um, well, it's a way of empathizing and seeing ourselves in a termite queen who's just about the least human thing you can imagine. Um, so we, we travel along with the termite queen when she does her, her nuptial flight, this, this brief flight when they burst out of the mound. The, this is the fertile, the fertile termites, um, the kings and the queens, burst out of the mound uh, and they fly for just, you know three feet or something like that. They crash land. They don't they, they're uh, basically just a, a way of carrying genes almost. Um, they crash land and they break their little wings off. Uh, and then they scuttle off to a hole in the ground. Um, what's amazing to me is that when they go off to the hole in the ground, provided all this works, I mean, mo- generally, like, more than 99% of these fertile termites are eaten because they're delicious and they're very fatty. Um, supposed to be a bit nutty-flavored. Um, anyway, they scamper off to a little hole in the ground if they're not eaten. They breed, and then they trim the ends of their antennas. Apparently, they bite off the ends of their own antennas, which reduces their sensation because they're going to be like locked underground for all this time. Of course, they don't know that, but they, something drives them to bite the ends of their antenna off. And to me, it reminds me of, you know, my friends who have toddlers and are sleep deprived. So they aren't completely aware of everything that's going on. This is a way of kind of like blocking out some of the sensation.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick pause here. I, I do want to say that if you would like Lydia Brown to read a poem that you wrote, send the poem to me along with $100 in cash, 150 and five-tenths. Um, uh, but meanwhile, we're going to come back. We're going to talk more uh, about termites. We're going to talk about sort of basically the uh, innate human reaction to uh, termites, which is, of course, is faster, pussycat, kill, kill.
4: At your cat, I've been tasting your love letters. Thrown up in your hat. I've been hiding in your walls and plotting with your mouse. I'm hungry and I'm gonna
1: eat your house. All right. We're back. We're talking about termites, uh, and we're uh, being guided through the world of termites, uh, led by the hand through a giant metaphorical termite, a mound by Lisa Marganelli, author of Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. But you're like the perfect Colin McEnroe show guest. What's your next book about? Let's make a plan here.
4: <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know. I'm keep thinking us, tetrapods, but I don't know. Right.
1: Keep us in the loop. All right. So we are now going to, I mean, look, there's no avoiding it. We can romanticize termites uh, all we want, but they will occasionally show up at your house, and that just isn't a good thing if you want to keep Having a house, so uh, joining us uh, to be part of that conversation is Jennifer Dacey, entomologist, wildlife biologist, and integrated pest management technician at the Yukon Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture. She's also the technical director for CT Pest Control Association. Before we get to Jennifer, though, Lisa, I guess, I guess maybe one thing we haven't sort of said is how come termites can eat wood? What's going on with their gut biology that they're so good at eating croquet mallets and things?
4: Well, um, they have a whole collection of, of microbes in their guts, um, and some of those are capable of unlocking the complicated uh, molecular structure of wood. And so <clears throat> it used to be thought that maybe the termites picked up those microbes you know, every day as they were going around in the woods, but that's actually not the case. They've actually been co-evolving for um, 100 million years or more. And, um, and there's some wild stuff in their guts. There are, um, you know, about half of them are not seen, or more are not seen anywhere else on earth. Uh, many of the genes that they when, they, when they sequence the genes in termite guts, they sequence not the individual creatures in the gut, but they sequence, they just take the whole thing, throw it in a blender, chop it up, and sequence all those genes. And so, um, of those genes, about 40% have never are, have no known function. So it's kind of, we don't exactly know what they're doing, but they have different kinds of enzymes that are kind of like a Swiss army knife that, that kind of go up to the edge of the structure of the cellulose and kind of unlock it. And then another one, another creature will come in and perhaps eat the exhaust of the first um, it's a very complicated little world in the gut.
1: It does. It sounds scary. All right. So, uh, Jennifer, uh, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Jennifer Dacey. Um, you know, if all they ever ate was a croquet mallet, uh, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But, Jennifer, one of the issues with termites is there just are a lot of them, right? So I, yeah. maybe you can sort of give us a sense of the scale issue of termites.
0: Well, Termites are pretty much anywhere in the environment where you have soil or, or dead wood. Um, they're out in the woods, um, they're actually beneficial in nature because they will break down fallen wood and then they return the nutrients back down into the soil. The problem is is that we've cut down these woods and we've built homes on them, which is a huge investment, the biggest investment we make in our lives. Um, and they will go in and they will, you know, damage the structure. It's it's a structural pest, so it, it actually, it, it will... Um, they will, they will break down the wood and they will, as they said earlier, they have this symbiotic relationship in their gut with another, with the microorganisms and protozoa. But they can cause an awful lot of damage to a person's home and structural damage that's very expensive to treat and very expensive um, to repair as well.
1: We should point out, Jennifer, that um, it's not so much that, we're, that they're showing up in our homes. We're in their home, right? Like, they were here way before us yes
0: that's that's correct they've been around since prehistoric times and they'll probably be around after us um they they know how to they've evolved with nature and and they're just adapting so right. they, they're not feeding on the fallen trees anymore they're feeding on you know, the damaged wood we have in our homes. If we've had water damage or, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, we had those bad ice storms and everyone had the ice dams Mm -hmm. and they had damage to their roofs and they had a lot of water damage. Well, that type of soft damaged wood will attract termites and and they really love any type of moisture um, because it's easier. They like the soft woods to begin with, but they really love damaged wood. It's just easier for them to... uh, to chew through.
1: You know, that is the is the, believe it or not, this is the second time in preparing for this show that ice dams have come up in my head anyway because I was thinking about ice dams before because ice dams activate this kind of atavistic, weird, savage impulse in people. When they have ice dams they flip out and they'll, they'll do stuff like they'll get up on their roofs with a chainsaw and <laughs> just sawing yeah. away at the ice dams or, or a blowtorch or something like that. And so they set their houses on fire, they fall off and hurt themselves. They, like ice dams, because people flip out in this very unthoughtful way. You know, they cause all kinds of much more chaos than, than they need to. And I think termites do the same thing, Jennifer. It's like you've got termites and I say, okay, well, here's something called chlordane. Uh, we're going to put it okay. in the ground and uh, it'll, the termites will go away. And most people will go, fine, I don't even really care what it is. <laughs> Just kill them all. Kill them all. Make them go away. Oh, so talk about that. That's, yeah.
0: that's true. Everyone wants, you know, they want to live a green green life, um, but when it comes to termites, it depends on your shade of green. Um, they do... I remember one time I went in, they had swarmers, as, as your guest was saying earlier, they come out in the hundreds, these winged reproductives, and they really freak out homeowners. I went in one time and they were all over, all over their kitchen table, these hundreds, hundreds of, of swarmers, so people get very, very upset and, and you know, naturally so. But I think it's important for a homeowner to realize and, and take notice of what they can do to try and prevent this from happening. I mean, we don't want to have to go, you can't use chlorine, obviously, anymore. Mm-hmm. That was a chemical. It was an organophosphate that they put in the ground, in the soil, around the perimeter of the home, and it persisted in the environment for a very long time, up to 20 years. So your house was protected um, from termites for 20 years, but everyone remembers Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. Um, And after that, um, there was a a concern. And the reason that there were chlordene and those organophosphates were so effective against termites is also the reason why they're banned now, because they persist in the environment for so long. So they do, conventional treatments now will do liquid barriers, but they also have other products um, called baits which are not, they're an insect growth regulator. It's not really a synthetic pyrethroid or any type of real pesticide. It is a pesticide, but it, it only affects the insect. Right. Um, so termites, you... termites have a, a gradual metamorphosis, mm-hmm. and what that means is the nymphs will shed their skins. As your guest said earlier, they shed their skins, and then they get a little bit bigger um, until they become an adult. And what happens is, as they're going through that molting process, it's it's a juvenile hormone mimic that will tell them, okay, it's time for you to molt again, it's time for you to molt again, and then that hormone goes away, and their next mol- molting, they become adults. Well, what this bait does is it keeps them thinking, okay, it's not time to become an adult, it, it, it's a juvenile hormone mimic itself. So they they never become an adult, they get deformed, they can never reproduce. And these are actually put, these baits are actually put in in-ground stations around your home. And they came about because of people who, who, who were either pesticide sensitive or they had a well system in their yard or they were close to a waterway where they just couldn't use those liquid treatments. Um, so they are, we are kind of, the pest control industry is going green. They are, you know, integrated pest management is now becoming a standard um, and it, people are much, much more environmentally conscious than they were 20, 30 years ago.
1: It sounds like it's essentially you're turning the termites into gamers. You know, they don't never mature. They don't reproduce. They stay in the basement you know, no. in their pajamas and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. you know, Lisa, uh, one thing we should say here, uh, Lisa Margonelli, is that, like, what are the termites doing at your house? Well, the reason the termites are at your house, the way I understand it, is termites are wanderers, right? That's, they're always kind of on the move down there in the soil unless they bump into something. Is that how it works?
4: Yeah. Unless they bump into something, um, they, they sort of spread out in a uh, an asterisk pattern from their mound or from their nest and they go in every direction until they hit something um, and if you if you pour like a molten aluminum or something down into their underground nest you get these fantastic shapes that look like um, you know they, they look like New York subway system uh, times 10 <laughs> you know Union mm-hmm. State Union Square um, I think another thing that, uh, that Jennifer brings up is that termites are actually pretty hard to kill. You know, other bugs, you can, you can hit them with something that gets them infected and they die. But termites are so, they're all for one and one for all. They're, all. they're so into cleaning each other and grooming each other and they have so many kind of immune reactions that it's actually really hard to kill them through a disease.
1: Um, So, Jennifer, uh, we should at least tell one creepy horror story, termite story. So uh, you went into the crawl space uh, in someone's home in your capacity as sort of the uh, Indiana Jones of entomology. What did you what did you find there?
0: Well, you find a lot of things in crawl spaces. Um, This was one. It was a historic home and they hadn't had it inspected in a long, long time. Um, I don't know the last time anyone was was under it. To look around, and I went in with a, a gentleman who had over 30 years in pest control, and they had mud tubes going from the ground up until up into the the wood beams and into one support beam. Um, we had never seen so many mud tubes, and uh, he he said, "I've never seen this in my 30 years working there." Um, and of course, all of those beams have to be replaced um, because it is it is part of the structure. It's what the house is sitting on. Um, you can we could have put you when you do an inspection you use a probing tool like a like a screwdriver and you tap and tap and tap and see if you can find any hollow sounds we put these screwdrivers tap them into the sill the sills uh, um and boom they went right right through um right through the beams the beams were almost hollow from that <laughs> it was and it's a horrible thing because then you have to go up and tell the homeowner you know it's it's really probably the worst we've ever seen. Um, but it, you know, it's the last thing a homeowner obviously wants to hear. Right. But mud, mud tubes are, are fascinating because these workers are, the workers and the soldiers are also, they're soft-bodied, so they cannot expose themselves to the air or they'll desiccate very quickly. Um, so they build these mud tubes. They're made from a mixture of soil and their saliva and their feces. Um, And and it will protect them from natural enemies, and it will protect them from drying out. So that's one sign you can see. Sometimes you will see the mud tubes either going up a wall when they're trying to get from the soil up the concrete foundation up into wood. Um, They have to make it up there, but they can't get through the concrete, so they come out and they build these mud tubes. That's one sign you can look for. But sometimes they will go straight standing from the soil right up into a beam which is it's really kind of incredible. They look like almost little volcanoes um, that just go right up, and it's, it's really interesting. And sure. if you knock one of those mud tubes, um, they send out that alert pheromone, and the soldiers come right to the front, and it, it's really, really kind of interesting, and then they'll, they'll start patching it up again, too. Um, really incredible insects.
1: All right, so you thought the Amityville Horror was scary. We're going to have to take a little break here. For God's sakes, get out! Uh, and we're going to come back. We're actually we're going to go the opposite direction. Instead of termites uh, eating your building, we're going to build a building that mimics the artistry of termites. Uh, but thank you very much to Jennifer Dacey, entomologist, a wildlife biologist, an integrated pest management technician at the Yukon Department of Plant Science. We'll be right back. They will eat a pit <laughs> house,
0: Cracks for you. You know they'll eat all your house. It's true. Whoa, oh, oh, so don't go through all this pain. See
1: how Okay, we're back for our final segment. Very quickly, I have to do some credits because Kion Wolf is not here today to do the credits, which means that Jonathan McPence is on the board, where Kion Wolf usually is. Betsy Kaplan is the uh, producer of this show. And I guess Simeon's in there, right? Is he doing anything in there? Yeah, okay. He's just doing something anyway, right? All right, so uh, Simeon uh, helped out. Um... Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Laura Croft we're gonna go back to termites right now uh, joining us first of all well here for the here for the whole thing is Lisa Marganelli author of and it's available now without a prescription the book underbug an obsessive tale of termites and technology uh, by once again written by Lisa Marganelli who's been our kind of anchor guest today uh, and now joining us uh, as promised uh, Mick Pierce uh, has been an architect in Zimbabwe and Zambia for over 30 years uh, he is doing work in what is sometimes called biomimicry architecture, um, and I'm going to let him explain it so that I don't screw it up. Um, but so first of all, uh, Mick, welcome to our conversation.
3: Hi, hello,
1: I, um, from London. So, so, um, so if I were just looking at your Eastgate building in Zab- in Zimbabwe, I, I wouldn't necessarily go wow. He based all that on termites. Um, so, <laughs> so, but, but in fact, termites were a big artistic and creative influence for you. Explain how that is the case.
3: Well, I, 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 I used to walk the dogs, and I still do, um, on a golf course where um, in the South Harari, which was a, actually a wetland, um, and you get um, in September, October, you get these breathing towers that are built by termites they're like uh, some, uh, earlier you were talking about mud tubes, that, that's what they are but they rise by themselves they're about sort of ooh, four inches in diameter and they go up three or four feet, five, five or six feet sometimes um, and they, they, they as far as I can see are for breathing because underneath them way down in in the ground, um, underground, there is a big um, space. And that space is the same volume as the tube because obviously they're digging out uh, pieces of soil and and shifting it up to build this tube. And then you wonder why they do it and also how they do it. Now, they're blind. um, And they're working with, Smell or pheromones—that's per- 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 um, how they they communicate. Um, and then you know I I, uh, I was fascinated by this because I knew that they actually created a stable environment down below. That was their big challenge. Um, you, you, someone was talking earlier of keeping it damp. Well, that's absolutely true. They're very sensitive to humidity. They've got to keep the humidity right, not just for themselves but for the fungi that they grow in the in their um caverns underground and the fungi is the their the fungi's contribution is to um really uh, digest the bits of um bits of timber they've moved removed from your house um they don't eat that directly it has to be. Um, pre-digested. So in other words if you imagine the whole system underground and the tube it's a body, mm-hmm. just like a body it has a, it has a, a, a stomach and um, lungs that come out from the ground. They they build the tube in, in September October, November when it gets very hot and when the air temperature um, above ground is almost identical to the temperature they want, they need. It's about 31 centigrade. Sorry, I can't convert that at the moment. It's Fahrenheit. But about 31 centigrade. Now, when the air temperature gets the same on top, that the air stops moving from below ground and out. So they start to suffocate. And they build this tube to um, uh, to enhance the air movement with, with, with a with stack effect. Now all of that picture gave me uh, an idea for um, making air conditioning work or natural ventilation work in the building I was building um, or designing that stage, um, and that's why it has rose has 48 huge chimneys which rise up through the building, um, and that helps to um, it helps on. Uh, uh, with it was, it was the fan power that is needed to push air up through the building. Um, and then they, it was clear that they use the ground, the thermal mass of the ground, or the thermal capacity of the ground, to modify the underground temperature. Mm-hmm. So they're very sensitive to temperature and humidity. Um, they also dig wells down uh, below the water table and bring mud up from... Um, from deep down, um, where there is water, so they're working. I mean, the whole picture of, of this um, creation is like a plant. Mm. Yes. Now, all of all of that sort of adds up to what we are talking about when we, we say biomimicry. We're not copying the the form so much as the
1: process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so oh, I wanted, yeah. uh, Mick, I just want to switch over to Lisa for just a second here, because I know, Lisa, one of your reactions to this is that, you know, we obviously have regarded for 100 years or more termites with mostly disgust and alarm. But if you go back far enough, you can find uh, a way of thinking that, that echoes uh, some of what Mick is saying, right? There was a time when that utopian quality of termites was more widely appreciated.
4: Yeah, that's true. During the Enlightenment, um, uh, science naturalists, they weren't quite, they, science hadn't quite been invented yet, but they would look into termite mounds and, and try to see like a pattern or a way that humans should live. And they saw that as a, sort of a naturally ordained society. And they came up with some really weird ideas, everything from uh, the termite. Uh, mound showed that aristocracies were good and the rights of kings were right and workers were born to protect and feed the aristocracy that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and 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 also considerably worse, I'll add. And then some people uh, looked in the termite mound and saw like a perfect sort of uh, socialist society and. Um, And so there was this whole sort of uh, seeing utopias of various sorts in the social insect organization. But for most of the 20th century, I think we've viewed the termites as destructive or pests or an example of a kind of like insect fascism. I mean, Aldous Huxley used them as an example for Brave New World, apparently. Uh, This idea that you were just sort of a drone and a cog in a larger corporate project. And... One of the things that's really lovely about uh, what Mick has done is looking at the function of the termite mound and then bringing those ideas um, in a very kind of hopeful way into our human design. Um, And you can also see that with um, some of the work that geneticists are doing. We are now looking to nature for sort of um, blueprints or intellectual property to be more blunt about it, but, but blueprints of how you could live more gently on the earth.
1: Um, uh, we're almost out of time. We've only a minute or two le- left. But, uh, but Mick Pierce, I, I guess the other part of this that's implied in everything you're saying is that these mechanisms, these processes exist as an alternative to some of the resource consuming things we do to, say, cool our environments.
3: Absolutely. They don't need a power connection to keep the air conditioned exactly in a very fine band. Um, and I think they're working to an algorithm. They're not actually working to a fascist leader. And they don't have a plan uh, a, like an architect's plan. They just build. They're blind. Mm. So what they're building is is not seen in the same way as we do. Their their eyes are pheromones or smell, really. It's a chemical um, uh, way of, com- of, of uh, communicating. So I, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated. They're social insects, and, and the way social insects behave is, is very interesting. Um, and as I said, you know, it's much more of a process than a, um, uh, a formed um, uh, a family tree of power. It's, it's actually. It's rather like the, these amazing starlings flying over Portland that I saw the other day. I was, I was up in Oregon, and uh, as they, they, they form these wonderful um, clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just, they're just flying to an algorithm.
1: Right. Yes. If we, and if we only knew what it was. All right. Mick Pierce. we're going to have to stop it there. An architect in uh, Zimbabwe and Zambia. And um, we also have to say goodbye to one of our favorite guests ever, Lalisa Margadelli. You can just check in and find out what we're doing shows on. And then just tell Betsy whether you want to be on them or not. I mean,
4: <laughs> thank you. I love this show.
1: <laughs> I, I want to eat it up. All right. Yes. Yeah, see, that's the problem. Um, <laughs> Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. You learn a lot about techni- uh, termites. You also learn a lot about Lisa because she's very much a character in her own book, and she's sort of the Carmen. San Diego of, uh, of entomology. She's just jetting all over the planet uh, in search of <laughs> kind of grotty uh, kinds of situations. Yes. All right. So thanks very much, Lisa. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan who conceived of it all. Thanks to Mr. McPants for jumping on the board. And thanks to anybody else who warrants thanking. I don't know who that is.
0: I like to find to grind, but any old kind will do. We
1: eat wood in my neighborhood. So check out the termite, check out the termite.